And now hear God's holy word from 1 Samuel chapter 15, continuing our study in the book of 1 Samuel. Samuel also said to Saul, Yahweh sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, heed the voice of the words of Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul gathered the people together and numbered them in Teleim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to a city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Saul said to the Kenites, go, depart, get down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came up from Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites and Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He also took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good and were unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. Thus far the reading of God's word, let us give thanks together. Father, we ask you today for your Holy Spirit to guide us through this study of your word. Help me to be a faithful communicator of your word. I pray that you would cause me to forget everything that's not helpful, anything that is an error, but bring to mind all the things that are helpful and efficacious and, and encouraging for your people. And so, Father, deliver us all from distraction. Deliver us all from the worries and anxieties of this world so that we may focus on your kingdom and your story. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. People of God, the pagan religions of the ancient world can be summarized with one word. Their, their whole philosophy, their whole theology, their whole practice can be, can be summarized with the word manipulation. Ancient pagan religions, whether we're talking about Baal worship or the worship of the Greek and Roman gods, the orientation of the worshiper toward the false god was one of a manipulator. And here's how it works. How do, how do we dance? How do we sacrifice? How do we wail? How do we shout? How do we debase ourselves to get the attention of our gods to get them to do what we want them to do? How do we get the gods to bless our crops and make our animals fertile and make our wives fertile and, and make our enemies flee before us in battle? Well, there's a technique, there's a dance, there's, a, there's the medicine in the uh, American Indian pagan religion. There's, there's, the, uh, there's the, the dance. How do, we, how do we do this to put the gods in a position to bless us? We see this in the showdown between Elijah and the prophets of Baal, don't we? The prophets of Baal wail and they cut themselves and they try to get Baal to wake up and take notice and come down and give them what they want. You see, in the pagan religion, in the pagan mindset, we have to almost trick the gods into helping us out. We have, to, uh, we have to put them in a position where they have to serve our needs. And if we don't get what we want, that means we didn't do the dance right. 
That means we had bad medicine. That means we, we didn't do the chant right or we didn't sacrifice enough animals. It doesn't have anything to do with the condition of our heart. It doesn't have anything to do with what a sovereign God has ordained for our lives. It has everything to do with the technique. It has everything to do with manipulating the gods. And of course, modern false religion follows the very same pattern. The name it and claim it brand of Christianity, that religion, and and the works righteousness dogmas preach essentially the same thing. You do this and you do it the right way, And God is bound, God is obligated to give you what you want because you have merited it. You have earned it. And so there are all these sermons and books on technique, five things to do for a better successful life, three ways to a brighter future. And you you have to keep track of all all of these techniques and this list of three things this Sunday and this list of five things and this list of seven things. And these are the techniques to get God to do what you want him to do for you. Of course, true religion, biblical religion, has never been about mankind manipulating the God of creation, as if we could even do that. It's not about fooling God or tricking God or backing God into a corner. True religion, biblical religion, is about the God of the universe pursuing man to give man something he doesn't know that he needs. It's, it's about giving man something that, that is good for his eternal life that he's not even asking for, that he's too dead and too ignorant to, to want. In biblical religion, man merits nothing. Man deserves nothing. Man can never get one over on a perfectly holy God. Man obeys and serves and worships God out of gratitude out of humility, but not to get something out of God. God, it's not a vending machine where you put the money in and you get this this little thing out that you asked for and you're guaranteed this thing. But, But this is how the pagans viewed their gods. Very quid pro quo. Life is like an equation. You put your your the right numbers in here and you're guaranteed the result over here. Very tit for tat. I did this dance for you. You are obligated to send rain for my crops. Now, the reason I bring this up today is because King Saul has developed this very pagan perspective on God over these last three chapters, and we'll see it come right to the surface today. He, he, uh, he, he's given now this third opportunity to be faithful. He's given this third, third chance to do what God says, And now we're going to see his third failure in a row. He deliberately disobeys the very clear word of God. He does what he wants to do in spite of God's command. For the last two weeks, we've seen Saul's horrible decline. After such an amazing beginning to Saul's kingdom, we have seen two failures in a row so far. Two events where Saul's foolishness and his impatience and his arrogance has resulted in God's enemies getting away. Instead of victory, we have these loose ends. Instead of confessing his sin and admitting that he's wrong, both times we've seen Saul just kind of slink off the battlefield, just kind of just kind of just drop his shoulders and walk away instead of repenting. Now we're going to get one more story about Saul here, one more failure before David comes on the scene. And if you're keeping track, again, this is three opportunities, including the chapter before us, three opportunities to obey. 
and three falls before God's final judgment on Saul. And there are parallels between Saul's three falls and the three failures of Adam and his descendants in the first nine chapters of Genesis. We typically think back to um, the, the book of Genesis and say, oh yeah, there was the fall, capital F, Adam and Eve fell in the garden. But what we get in the first nine chapters of, of Genesis is actually three successive failures before the flood. Adam's failure doesn't send the flood. Cain's failure doesn't bring the flood. It's, it's after three failures that God wipes the earth clear of this, this race of man that he's created and starts over with Noah. So the first fall in Genesis is, of course, Adam's fall. He fell where? In the garden sanctuary, the place of worship and communion with God. He sinned against God, Adam did, when he failed to protect the bride against the attacks of the serpent. When Adam grew impatient and reached out his hand for the forbidden fruit. And when he was caught, Adam didn't confess his sin immediately. He passed the buck. It's that woman. Instead of, instead of protecting the bride, he accuses the bride. He doesn't defend her. He accuses her. We've seen Saul repeat that sin as well. So, so Adam and his family were kicked out of the garden into the land. And it's in the land where the second fall of humanity comes when brother sins against brother, when Cain kills his brother Abel. And Cain is kicked out of the land into the world. And the world is the arena where we have our third fall, our third failure. After many generations, we, we have the godly line of Seth who compromises the sons of God, the holy seed, intermarry with the daughters of the seed of the serpent. And then now comes the judgment. Then comes the flood. Three falls and a flood. Three falls and a judgment. You're kicked out of the garden, sanctuary, into the land. You're kicked out of the land. Cain is kicked out of the land into the world. And then when we sin in the world, why? We're kicked out of the world. The flood comes and we're, we're, we're removed from the world. And uh, God begins again with Noah and his family. So by the end of chapter 15, here's what we will see. Saul has repeated the great three falls of mankind. He fell first where? In the garden sanctuary. He fell at Gilgal, at the place of worship and communion with God. What did he do at Gilgal? He failed to protect the bride. He let the serpent, the Philistines, into the garden. He let them have the run of the place. He grew impatient like Adam. He wouldn't wait for Samuel to come sacrifice. And then when he was confronted, what did, what did Saul do? He made, he made, um, he made excuses just like, just like Adam. And then after that failure, after he fell just like Adam, last week we saw Saul fall like Cain. He abused his brothers. He abused the army. He treated the army as if it was his own. And he made foolish vows and idiotic statements like, nobody's going to eat until they're finished fighting my enemies. Why? That's just ridiculous. God has provided food on the ground for his army. The trees are literally dripping with honey. The trees have pomegranates on them. And you're denying your brothers food for the fight. And then by the end of the chapter, he wants to kill Jonathan, the same spirit of Cain, is alive and well in Saul. Saul repeats the second failure of man, the second fall. And, uh, and then now he's in the world among the nations. Here is where he compromises. Just like that third great fall, he is compromising with King Agag here. Saul 
repeats the sin of compromise, and he spares the wicked king that God commanded him to destroy. And so we repeat the cycle. We had in Genesis three falls and a flood. So what do you expect to see here? We see three big failures, three falls of Saul, and now we're going to see judgment. Saul's kingdom, Saul's world is going to be wiped off the face of the earth, and a new man is going to come and take his place. So here's how this last fall of Saul, I wish there was a better way to say that, fall of Saul. I've said that four times or five, and maybe that'll be the last time I say it. But here's how the last fall of Saul transpires. Samuel starts by calling on Saul, and he commissions him one more time. He gives him one last set of instructions to see if he'll obey. Now, I just read this, but I want you to listen closely. Samuel also said to Saul, Yahweh sent me to anoint you king over his people over Israel. Now, therefore, heed the voice of the words of Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. You can hear Samuel pleading with Saul here. He says, heed the voice of Yahweh. Listen for once, Saul. Pay attention. Follow every direction that you are about to receive. It's like when you tell your children, look at me. No, 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 no. Turn around. Look at me. I want to see your eyeballs. I got to see your eyeballs. Go pick up your stuff in the room. Make your bed. I want, I want to make sure you see me and you hear me because you better get it right. That's what, that's what Samuel's doing with Saul. Look at me. Look at my eyeballs. I want you to hear what God has said. Pay attention. These are your orders straight from Yahweh. God says, I require you to finish the job I gave my people back in Exodus 17 and back in Deuteronomy 25. I told them back then, and when you have rest from all your enemies, that you're to blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. He says, utterly and completely destroy them. Now, who, who were the Amalekites? Where they were the opportunistic nation that attacked Israel just when they were coming up out of Egypt. Before they even got to Mount Sinai, they tried to prevent Israel from getting to Mount Sinai and raiding them while they were loaded down with all these treasures from Egypt. They tried to take advantage of them there. And so God added them to the list of nations that were supposed to be wiped off the face of the earth. This, this was another people group that was to be given up as a whole burnt offering. Now, when we read this and we hear this, it strikes us to the heart and to the core. When we hear God say, I want you to destroy all of them. I want you to destroy the moms and the dads, the babies, and even the nursing children, the oxes, the donkeys, and the other animals. I want you to wipe them completely off the earth. And that, that kind of catches in our throat when we hear that. It's, it's horrible, and it's awful, and it's also what God wants. And we have to close our mouths before the voice of a holy and righteous God and say, Lord, you know what you are doing here. Just as God certainly wiped uh, infants off the face of the earth in the flood, just as certainly as there were children who died in Sodom and Gomorrah, just as certainly as in disasters today, little ones and innocents lose their lives in natural disasters, God knows what he's doing. And in this case, God wanted his people to be the instrument of destruction against this wicked people. 
Now, we covered this topic a lot back when we studied Joshua. And if you want, some, if you want to talk about this some more, come talk to me or write me an email or, or call me on the phone this week. And we can talk more about God's justice and his righteousness, even against the Canaanite tribes. But here for our study today, just understand God wanted this and God demanded it. And this was something that he had required a long time ago. And now he's saying, this is what I want Saul to do. These people are like a whole burnt offering. They're like an ascension offering. You don't keep anything. You don't, you don't take anything back from these nations. Remember Achan tried to keep something from Jericho. You don't do that. These nations are de dedicated entirely as a sacrifice from top to bottom. Samuel tells Saul, you're the man that God wants to put them away for good. So verse four, Saul gathered the people together and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to a city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, go depart, get down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. The Kenites were a group of people who were descendants of the Midianites. Remember, the Midianites were the uh, descendants of Abraham's second wife, Keturah. After Sarah died, Abraham married Keturah, and the Midianites are descendants of Keturah. The Midianites are cousins of the Israelites. And a people group within the Midianites were the Kenites. And remember, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, was a Kenite. And they were a helpful people to Israel. They were the exact opposite of, of Amalek. They helped Israel. And it, as it turns out, uh, now they're dwelling in a land close to Israel. And uh, so Saul says to them, you better get out of here because we're bringing judgment against the Amalekites who are all around you and living with you. Get out. Sort of like the angels told Lot to get out of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's, uh, it's a similar message to what Jonah uh, preaches. It's a different it's a similar message to what Noah preaches. The world is about to be destroyed. Separate yourselves and unite yourselves to God's people before this world is destroyed. And so this is the message to these people. Get out. The world's about to end. Verse 7. Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He fights them all the way down the, the peninsula, all the way down to Egypt. He also took... Every time we read about Saul, we read something that was like, yes, yeah, Saul, that's, that's good. Yes. And then we go, oh, it's, it's like a roller coaster, but not a fun one. It's an ugly, it's a terrible roller coaster. So Saul fought the Amalekites. Verse 8, he also talk, took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. It's important that we're clear on what happened here. It's very important that you understand what just happened, because Saul is going to lie about what just happened. Saul is going to say something different happened, and what we just read is false, but, but actually... The testimony of the scripture we just read is true. The Bible is clear that the people and Saul did precisely what was forbidden. They kept the best things for themselves and they destroyed the worthless things that they didn't care for. All this treasure and all this livestock and even the king were dedicated to God and they were supposed to keep their mitts off of it. They were supposed to remove it from the face of the earth. Saul is going to lie about this though and he's going to say that's not what we did. 
but instead we, we see them very much seizing the forbidden fruit. They're, they're acting like Achan. Remember last chapter, uh, Jonathan says, my father has troubled the land. And that was the exact same word used for Achan. Achan was a troubler of Israel. Same word, and Saul is continuing down this Achan-like path. But you aren't supposed to pick through this stuff like it's some yard sale where you, where you save some good stuff for yourself. But that's precisely what Saul and the people do. And they save the king of the Amalekites. Why? He's practically a colleague of Saul's, right? I mean, kings have to stick together. Only another king can really understand what I'm going through and what I, what I have to put up with. I have, to, I have to save this king. We don't want to dishonor a king. Everything they thought was worthless, they destroyed. They kept the things they wanted. Verse 10. Now the word of Yahweh came to Samuel saying, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried out to Yahweh all night. Now, what did, what did God say in Genesis 6 after that third fall of man? I'll, we'll remember it together. After, after that third fall of man, Yahweh was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. After Adam, after Cain, after the godly line of Seth fall, it grieves Yahweh. He was sorry that he made man. Now, after the third fall of Saul, Yahweh says, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king. If we haven't picked up on it yet, there's the clue. Saul has gone through the greatest failures of human history, and he's repeated every one. And with, with the first time we went through this with the flood, God put to death the old world and gave birth to a new one. Now after this fall, God is going to put Saul's kingdom to, to death and give birth to a new kingdom. But there's some mystery here when we hear that God regretted making Saul king, or that God regretted making man, we might ask, how does, a, how does a sovereign, omnipotent, omniscient God feel sorry for anything? How does he regret an outcome that he knew was coming? Well, here's how he, God is grieved over the outcome. He knew what was going to happen, but that doesn't mean that it's any less grievous to him. He doesn't take pleasure watching Saul self-destruct, just like he wasn't happy to watch mankind's self-destruction before the flood. When, when Samuel hears God say all this, that it grieved him that he made Saul king, when Samuel hears God say this, he is torn up about it. He cries all night to Yahweh. Samuel loved Saul, and he's going to keep grieving. The, the next chapter opens with Saul, Samuel still grieving. Samuel loved Saul. Saul was like a son to Samuel. We've studied this theme all the way throughout this book, the, the theme of the adopted son. Eli's sons were worthless. God gave Eli Samuel to raise as the next priest and prophet of Israel. But then Samuel's sons really weren't worth a nickel. And so God gave to Samuel, Saul. Now Saul has faithful sons. Saul himself is going to be unfaithful, but it's going to be his son-in-law, his adopted son, David, who's going to carry the kingdom forward. But, but that's just a clue. That's just an insight into the relationship of Samuel to Saul. Saul started out a faithful son, but now he's taken a sledgehammer to everything that God gave him. Verse 12. 
So when Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, it was told Samuel saying, Saul went to Carmel and indeed he set up a monument for himself and he has gone around and passed by and gone down to Gilgal. Here we are at Gilgal again. We keep coming back to Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Saul and Saul said to him, blessed are you of Yahweh. I have performed the commandment of Yahweh. He is so proud of himself. What gall to claim obedience when you have rebelled against God. You even set up a monument to yourself on the way down to Gilgal. While Samuel has stayed up all night grieving over the condition of the kingdom and grieving over the soul of the king. While Samuel is grieving, Saul hasn't lost a wink of sleep. Now, you've probably experienced the same thing. I know I have too. You, you can't sleep and you can't eat and the anxiety feels like a bowling ball in your chest when you're grieving over someone who's hurting their family or you're grieving over somebody who's hurting the church or somebody who's destroying their own lives and you carry around this weight. You can't sleep. You lay down at night and sleep won't come because you're so worried about this person and the destructive behavior that they're engaged in. And then you see them and they haven't lost a wink of sleep. They're, they're bright-eyed and they're chipper because they, their conscience is seared. Their heart is calloused. Uh, and, and, and they are completely oblivious to the hurt that they're causing. And they greet you, hey, buddy, how's it going? Well, pretty bad, pretty bad. And that's how, that's how Saul greets Samuel. Hey, how's it going? I just want you to know I did exactly what God told me to do. Well, this isn't going to fly. Verse 14, Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears? And the lowing of the oxen which I hear. Where'd you get them, Saul? Where'd the sheep and the cows come from? And Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to Yahweh your God. And the rest we have utterly destroyed. Can you believe this guy? He's lying again. The people spared the best stuff, but we did our job and destroyed the bad stuff. He's blame shifting, just like Adam, just like Aaron, as we've seen. Credit me for all the good things. Blame them for all the bad things. Verse 16, Samuel said to Saul, be quiet. <laughs> He's, Samuel's fed up. Be quiet. And I will tell you what Yahweh said to me last night. And he said to him, speak on. So Samuel said, when you were little in your own eyes, were you not head of the tribes of Israel? And did not Yahweh anoint you over uh, king over Israel? Now Yahweh sent you on a mission and said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they're consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of Yahweh? Why did you swoop down on the spoil? This is impatience again. Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of Yahweh? And Saul said to Samuel, but I have obeyed the voice of Yahweh and gone on the mission on which Yahweh sent me and brought back Agad, king of Amalek. I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites, but the people took the plunder, the sheep and the oxen, the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed, to sacrifice to Yahweh your God in Gilgal. 
He's doubling down on his disobedience here. Look, Saul, you have another chance here just to come clean. Just admit that you sinned. Let's repent and let's make it right. And he still refuses to do this. In a sense, repentance is the easiest thing in the world. And you need to know that. And young people, teenagers, especially you, because you're going to mess up and you're going to make mistakes and you're going to do dumb stuff. And you need to know that repentance is the easiest thing in the world. The devil wants you to believe that is absolutely the most difficult, shameful, horrible thing that you will ever have to do. That to say, I'm sorry, please forgive me, is just the worst thing imaginable. But I want you to hear me say, repentance is the easiest thing to do. It's so much easier than carrying around a load of guilt. Just say, I messed up. Just say, I failed. You know what? I sinned. I disobeyed. How do I make it right? Just help me make it right. Let, let's do what's right, you see. But uh, Satan doesn't want you to think that that's, it's that easy. And certainly Saul at this point just can't make the words. He can't say it. Instead, Saul says again, the people took the animals to sacrifice. Well, they took them to sacrifice, right? Nothing wrong with that. The word that he uses, the language he uses, indicates that they wanted to offer peace offerings, communion offerings. God wanted, the, wanted these to be whole burnt offerings where everything is put on the altar, everything is consumed by fire, everything is destroyed. The people say, well, let's offer peace offerings. You know what peace offerings do, right? You you get some of the meat to eat. You share the meat. It's like a barbecue. A peace offering, a communion offering, is, is kind of like, uh, it's, it's like a party. They don't deserve a party. They didn't warrant a party. God wanted them all to be ascension offerings, that everything's con completely consumed. And so Saul's justifications and his excuses don't hold any water. This whole thing is rotten to the core, but he thinks if we just worship Everything will be all better. Everything will be fine. Verse 22. So Samuel said, Has Yahweh as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of Yahweh? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. Samuel is not saying sacrifices are important. God has required sacrifices. What Samuel is saying is what's, what's more important than you offering sacrifices, when and where you feel like offering sacrifices, what's more important than that is obeying the voice of Yahweh. Obedience is better than sacrifices. And here's what it comes down to, and here's what Saul doesn't understand. Worship is not a technique by which we acquire holiness. Or worship is not something that we do for God so that he's obligated to do something for us. Saul evidently had this pagan view of sacrifice. Again, this, this theology of manipulation. I can disobey what God says. I don't have to listen to what he wants. As long as I do the dance, as long as I do the ritual, as long as I sacrifice the animals, God is obligated to bless me and love me, and everything's going to be fine. And this is the same false religion that you see everywhere in the church. And I'm not just talking about weak churches, and I'm not talking about heretical churches, I'm talking about faithful churches. I'm talking about us, 
this is the same terrible theology. I can lie at work and I can steal money and I can defraud other people and I can watch naked people on HBO and on the internet and I can be lazy, and I cannot work. I, mean, I don't have to do what God says. I can be cruel to my wife. I can be cruel to my kids. I can hate my husband. I can be discontent, and I can gripe and complain and never show any gratitude anywhere for anything. I can be mean and ugly to everyone around me. I can be hateful, but as long as I show up to church a couple times a month or a couple times a quarter, as long as I just show up, God is pleased, and God has to bless me. God ought to be glad for this time that I'm giving him. He should appreciate this effort that I'm making. Anytime you think you're doing God a favor, anytime you think that, that, that you're, you're balancing out some wickedness with some good deed, you're practicing pagan religion. You're practicing this works righteousness mess that Samuel's condemning here. Because to obey is better than sacrifice. Worship is not a lever by which we make God our servant. Worship is vitally important. Worship is critical. God calls his people to come and appear before his throne. And we take worship seriously and we think through, well, what pleases God? What does God want to hear when we worship? But what he wants out of all of this at the end of it is your heart. What he's after is your obedience. And if you're going to do all this and you're not going to obey, all of this is a joke. It's a charade. It's a sham. It's a game. It's not a sweet-smelling sacrifice. It is a stench in the nostrils of God for you to not obey him and then to present yourself in worship as if you do. It's a joke. Obedience is the bottom line. You cannot manipulate God. You can't try to fill out this ledger over here and say, well, look at all these things. I gave a quarter and I showed up at church once or twice a month and I said a prayer and I helped an old lady across the street. So that covers for my despicable, ugly, hateful behavior in all these other ways. No, not at all. Listen to what Samuel says next. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as the iniquity and idolatry because you have rejected the word of Yahweh. Witchcraft, what is that? Why does he compare rebellion to witchcraft? Well, witchcraft is another attempt to manipulate creation. You do the cards or the chicken bones or the, or the, or the potions, whatever. And God says rebellion is like witchcraft. You rebelliously ignore what God has said and you try to put life together and you try to put together an existence apart from what God has said. You, you get some logic or some wisdom from somewhere else. Samuel says that's like witchcraft. Again, you're trying to manipulate reality apart from what God has said. And it's no surprise, where's Saul gonna end up before this is all done? Saul's gonna end up in front of a witch, isn't he? But here's the final blow. Samuel says, because you've rejected the word of Yahweh, he has rejected you from being king. Saul has repeatedly been given chance after chance after chance to repent, but now he has been rejected. Now we're going to compare David when we get to David's story. Um, when, when Nathan comes to David, remember, and, and Nathan says, you are the man, what does David say? David says, he doesn't say, oh, that woman, she shouldn't have been behaving that way. What does David say? He doesn't make excuses. David says, you're right. 
I am the sinner. I am the man. Samuel uh, says to Saul, you have sinned. And Saul says, the people you gave me made me do this. Now, uh, verse 24, um, Saul said to Samuel, I'm sorry, at the end of 23, I wrote, because you've rejected the word of Yahweh, he has also rejected you from being king. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. Oh, there's a little light bulb. There's hope. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned for I have transgressed the commandment of Yahweh in your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Again, he goes right back to that. That is the point I was making. He goes right back to blaming the people. It's like, uh, it's like Aaron at the foot of Mount Sinai when Moses comes down and Aaron says, we thought you were gone. We thought you died. We waited forever. We couldn't wait any longer. The people gave me this gold and I threw it into the fire. You'll never believe this, Moses, what came out of the fire. This cute little gold cow came out of the fire. It's the weirdest thing, but that's what happened. And the people wanted this. And the, and Saul's doing the exact same thing. You, 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 it, sounds like, it sounds like he's repenting. I, yeah, I've transgressed, but the people, but the, but the people, the people made me do this. This is not sincere. It's not genuine. And God does not accept this. God doesn't take this as repentance. Verse 25. Um, now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me. And this is Saul speaking. Please pardon my sin, return with me that I may worship Yahweh. He, he really doesn't want pardon. He just wants everything to go right back to normal. Let's go worship. But the thing is, you still don't get it. We can't worship yet. The king is still alive. We need to obey first and then we worship. But Samuel says to Saul, I will not return with you for you have rejected the word of Yahweh and Yahweh has rejected you from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned around to go away, he sees the edge of his robe and it tore. Now, some of your translations may have Saul in italics. The name Saul is not in the Hebrew. And so I, I think what's happening here is Samuel turns around and grabs Saul's robe. And I'll explain this in just a minute. He grabs Saul's robe and tears it. So Samuel said to him, Yahweh has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the strength of Israel will not lie or relent for he is not a man that he should relent. So you remember the garments of the Israelites had four wings, right? Uh, they had four wings with four tassels. Samuel turns to go, and as he goes, he grabs Saul's robe. He grabs the wing of his robe, his kingly garments, and he tears it. The robe of the king is a sign of his authority and position. Uh, remember, David is later going to get close enough to Saul to tear the wing of his robe. And this is a symbol, again, that the kingdom is being torn from Saul. Samuel says, God is not going to change his mind here. Don't expect now to manipulate God into giving the kingdom back. Don't think that there's a technique you can apply to get you what you want. Uh, not, not worship, not sacrifice. Nothing is going to work. You are a disobedient, rebellious man, Saul, and you are finished. Saul is being stripped of his kingly robe and God says, you're not going to get it back. Oh, moving quickly, verse 30. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now, please, before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may worship Yahweh your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul and Saul worshiped Yahweh. Now Samuel is going along here 
to maintain visible authority in Israel. If we say the king is deposed, if we say there's not a replacement yet, then revolutionaries would show up and there would be anarchy. It's important for the people now to see some continuity of leadership. Despite the fact that Saul is on his way out, there has to be civil order maintained. So Samuel is sticking by Saul for now, but there are things that God has required that still haven't been done yet. We're about to take care of them. Verse 32, Samuel said, bring Agag, king of the Amalekites here to me. So Agag came to him cautiously, I bet. And Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And I love how the Bible turns phrases. And Samuel hacked Agag into pieces before Yahweh in Gilgal. You want to cross-stitch that, somebody? Samuel, (laughs) put that on your verse of the day calendar. Samuel hacked Agag in pieces before Yahweh in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel went no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul and Yahweh regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. And that stops the chapter there. Um, Old Agag, he's breathing a sigh of relief. You know, he's coming cautiously when Samuel calls for him. And he's saying, well, if they kept me alive this long, maybe I'm in the clear. And he's banking on a certain level of professional respect, a certain level of professional camaraderie from a fellow king. Because for some reason, killing kings... And assassinating wicked rulers makes pagan people squeamish. It's, it's, it makes them queasy. But, but biblical warfare is always based around the principle that if you cut the head off the serpent, the snake dies. You cut the head off and the serpent is not a threat anymore. But Ehud, he doesn't have to fight with all of Moab, does he? Ehud just goes in and kills Eglon and the land has peace. The woman throws a millstone out the window and kills Abimelech, and the war is over. Kill the head, and the land has rest. Jael hammers Sisera's head into the ground, and we're done. It's over. Samson knocks out all the lords and the princes of the Philistines in Dagon's temple, and we have a cease of strife. We we don't have to respect the position of wicked pagan rulers of the nations who have not been put over us. We don't have to respect them. So the Bible in biblical warfare, we see this over and over, cut off the head and the land has rest. But the exact opposite happens in modernity all the time. National leaders, you know, dress up in business suits and they go have dinners together and they shake hands and they eat steak and they drink expensive wine in air-conditioned nice ballrooms while teenagers are on the battlefield killing each other. We send our poor young men to kill and be killed, but we won't send in an assassin to kill the tyrant. That's too unsavory. Thankfully, Samuel doesn't think that way. Samuel fears God more than he fears human kings, and he does what Saul wouldn't do, and he hacks up Agag before the Lord, and it's exactly what God wants. But for the third time in a row, I want you to notice this. Saul slinks off the scene and he goes home a failure. That's been the conclusion. And it's been hard to end these sermons because it's, it, every one of these chapters has been on such a down note. We are looking for victory. We're looking for a place of rest. And we haven't found one in three chapters. And it's okay to live with that for a little while. It's, it's okay to let that settle in. That here's this tor- terrible, horrible situation. 
and Saul could repent and fix everything, but he just kind of slithers away. And here again, Saul slithers away. There's so many things to learn from Saul's life to this point. I just want us to remember this one thing today. When God called Saul to be king, God said Saul was made into another man. He was given a new heart. He prophesied, Saul prophesied with the prophets. The Holy Spirit was filling Saul at that time. And if we knew Saul in that period, we would have no reason to believe anything other than that he was a brother. He was a genuine child of God. And yet over these three chapters, over this period of years, we see how far and how fast Saul falls from that position by persistent sin by failure to repent by high-handed arrogance and obedience and rebellion Saul has the kingdom stripped off of him and I want you to consider your own place what unbelievable blessing and what unbelievable opportunity you have been given by God what a great start you've had so far in your life and yet if you start to think like Saul that this is all a game, that God is a vending machine, that he ignores my rebellion, that he's really not paying attention when I disobey him, that, that worship or prayer or good deeds are a technique by which we manipulate God, that God is beholden to us because we do this and we do that. God is certainly obligated to bless us. If you ignore the warnings of scripture, if you just fail to repent when you sin and grieve the Holy Spirit, you will end up like Saul. You will end up on the outside and not on the inside of the covenant. And just as Saul's robe was torn from him, so God will tear from you all the good things that you have been given, all the things you've taken for granted. Do not allow your heart to be hardened. Do not grow calluses on your heart, but be tender and listen to what God has said. Be quick to repentance, lest we follow Saul into rebellion. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you once again for the message that we've heard today from it. We thank you for preserving these things, and we pray that you would soften our hearts by your Holy Spirit. May we be a people who love your word and listen to every syllable and desire to obey you out of gratitude for what you have done for us, not as a lever to manipulate you, not as a technique to make you do for us what we want, but simply out of humility and, and love for who you are. So Father, bless us in this way and grow us up more and more and conform us to the image of your son, Jesus, we pray. And it's in his name we ask these things. Amen.